So I have a question for you. How do you approach the Bible? How do you read it? What, when, you, when you read the Scriptures, assuming you do, what are you trying to glean from it? Because I think, if you're like me, I think a lot of us in the West come to the Scriptures with sort of an educational approach. There's something here I need to learn so I can pass a test. Or this is some kind of guidebook. I'm going to read it, I'm going to find the way to live, and then I'm going to do that. And it's, it's almost like this, like, I, I, want to, I want to get something out of it so I can do. And if you're like me, when you approach a book like the Psalms, you're like, I don't know what to do with this. There's not much direction. There's not, there's not a ton of educational in it, although there is some prose with stories and narratives in it. The book of Psalms, they're not a how-to guide. They're just not. And I would argue that most of the scriptures are not a how-to guide. It's not an educational source to try to learn from so we can pass a test. I think the scriptures tell the grand narrative of God's love for humanity, as exemplified most in Jesus. And it's a story that we are to be formed by as opposed to something we need to learn so we can pass a test. Not just a a resource, but it's something that shapes us and forms us. And we're going to be starting a series today. We're going to go through seven parts through the book of Psalms. Right in the middle of the Bible, if you have a a hard copy in front of you, uh, the the, the Psalms are right there in the middle of the Scriptures. They're right there in the middle of the Old Testament, right, before Jesus is on the scene for the people of Israel and for the world. The Psalms are, uh, again, I I have traditionally come to the Psalms and sort of said, "Eh, I'm just being honest with you. But as I've gotten older and started to understand God a little bit more and who he is and shaping me and forming me, now the Psalms have started to come alive for me. The Psalms are 150 chapters, right? So if you know the chapter headings, they have a number in front of them, one, two, three, four. They, They are really a series of 150 poems, hymns, liturgies. Some of them are coronation songs. When they would uh, put a new king on the throne, they would read these things. They're meant to be for corporate worship, for individual worship. And there are some teachings, like I said, there are some narratives that tell the stories of Israel's history up to that point. And if you've ever written poetry or if you are a creative writer of any sort, you know this, that that these poems, these hymns, these songs, these stories are written with great and intentional care. Like there's craftsmanship involved in these 150 poems. People have organized them into a book of sorts called Psalms, which really just means songs and hymns. Some of the poems are acrostics, if you know what that is, where each letter starts a new, is like symbolic for a word. Psalm 119, the, the longest psalm, is every heading within Psalm 119 is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and every line within that heading starts with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Very intentionally designed, right? Psalm 25, which we will get to in a couple weeks, is also an acrostic of using the, the, uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. 
The, the Psalms are taken together, all 150 of them. They're not broken up evenly, but they're organized into five different books, as it were. And some of your scriptures will say that. Book one, you go to some chapters later, book two, book three, book four, book five. And scholars think that maybe this was sort of a nod to Moses' first five books of the Torah. And so they're going to say that Moses has these five books of the narratives. We're going to give you these five books of poetry, of hymns, to gather around as the people of God. And they have been used, these psalms have been used for thousands of years now. Been used by thousands of years, for, for thousands of years, by the people of God. They're written by the people of God. They are for the people of God, both as individuals and as corporate worshipers. And so today I'm going to talk about it to the people of God. All right? And so... I, I'm going to just assume, and this is the interesting thing about church in the 20, what are we, in the 21st century, 20th century, uh, 21st century? Yeah, great. I'm, I'm always bad at that. 21st century, the interesting thing about church, particularly in the West, is that um, church is not like it used to be, in that I know that there's a lot of different people in the room, different experiences in the room, different levels of belief or faith in the room. The people of God, of Israel, like they were the people of God, they knew it. Early Christians, they had to like really decide that they were into this and they were really the people of God because they were going to be killed for it, right? And so now today we're like, no, oh, come check it out, right? So it's just, it's a little bit different, but I am kind of speaking this today to the people of God because it's written for the people of God by the people of God. And my sort of overarching goal today in this point is to help us see the overarching theme of the Psalms, that the Lord is God, all the Psalms sort of operate with this in mind. They might preach the low points, the high points, the victories, the losses, the confusion, the lamenting, the pain, but through all of it is this thread that the Lord is God. Real God for real people going through real situations. And so my goal today is to sort of introduce that topic of the overarching theme that the Lord is God. Walter Brueggemann uh, famous Christian scholar, says this in the beginning of his commentary on the Psalms. He says, The book of Psalms provides the most reliable theological, pastoral, and liturgical resource given to us in the biblical tradition. In season and out of season, generation after generation, faithful women and men turn to the Psalms as a most helpful resource for conversation with God about things that matter most. The Psalms are helpful because they are genuinely dialogical literature, meaning a dialogue. They're genuinely dialogical literature that expresses both sides of the conversation of faith. On the one hand, as one scholar has seen, Israel's faithful speech addressed to God is the substance of the Psalms. The Psalms do this so fully and so well because they articulate the entire gamut of Israel's speech to God, from profound praise to the utterance of unspeakable anger and doubt. Doubters be encouraged today. On the other hand, as Martin Luther understood so passionately, the Psalms are not only addressed to God, they are a voice of the gospel, God's good word addressed to God's faithful people. In this literature, the community of faith has heard and continues to hear the sovereign speech of God, who meets the community in its depths of need and in its heights of celebration. The Psalms draw our entire life under the rule of God, where everything may be submitted to the God of the gospel. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to read from Psalm 95 today. You can look in your phone uh, or you can look at it up on the screen. If you are looking in your phone, I, I read from uh, the version of the Bible called the Christian Standard Bible. Just something I picked uh, 
about a year ago. This psalm, as we'll see, is organized around a movement of people, literally a physical movement of people. This is a group of people that are moving towards the temple as pilgrims to go and to worship God. So I'll sort of announce it as we go. Actually, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to take away from the psalm itself. There's three sections. The first is the people outside of the temple. All the people of God are moving towards the temple to worship where God dwells, the temple that Solomon built, right? And they're moving towards it. And there's this invitation to come and worship. There's this proclamation of who God is, and there's these joyful songs that are being sung. And then they move inside the gates of the temple. They're drawing closer to the Holy of Holies, as it was called, where where God's presence dwells. And then they, they kneel down in worship towards this God in the Holy of Holies. And then a priest comes out, and you'll notice it's this jarring switch that happens all of a sudden. The priest is suddenly speaking to them, giving them a warning about who they are and who God is. So I'll read this for you. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, or enter. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Now the priest. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in anger, they will not enter my rest. What in the world, right? Like, come on in, come to the temple, come worship. God's angry at a generation of people. Okay, so let's break into this, right? Let's, let's figure out what's going on here. The first thing that's happening is there's this call to worship, right? To this gathering pilgrims of people as they're moving towards the temple to go to some kind of holiday of some sort. And the author says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. His presence there is actually come close to his face. That's really what that means. Let's come close to, the, to God's face with thanksgiving. Let us uh, shout triumphantly to him in song. This group of people, this mass of people is moving towards the temple complex and they're they're singing and and they're shouting this sense of, of proclaiming triumph as they move towards God's presence, towards his face. And there's this thanksgiving and triumph. The people are loud, they're rambunctious, they're cheerful, they're excited to go into God's presence. Uh, there's a show on Apple TV that my family watches, Don't Judge Me, I'm not going to name it, but it's about a soccer club in England, maybe you've heard of it. It will make you laugh and cry, okay? It's great. Pardon the language, but it's great. You've noticed this in soccer matches? Europeans get this so much better than we do in America. We're like, nah, I don't know if I want to get excited. I'm, I'm scared. Europeans are like, like going into a soccer match, into a football match, right? Like they're just screaming and chanting and they're singing songs in, in unison. You might get that, like, you might see that like a Red Sox game where they swing Sweet Caroline, but anyway, 
I hate the Red Sox. All right, sorry. So in, sorry, man, it was like, it was like somebody loves the Red Sox over there. I, how can that be? Anyway, they're excited, right? This group of people is excited moving into the temple of God, like people going into a football match. They're just screaming and shouting, and they're excited at this call to worship, to enter into God's presence. But then you get into why, right? Like, why are they doing this, Right? And it says in verse 3, for the Lord is a great God. That for, right? Here's the reason. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all the other gods of the day, right? There was this mindset that there were gods over the seas, there were gods over the harvest, there were gods over all these other things, right? And the people of Israel are saying, yeah, but God's the God. He's the God over everything else. The depths of the earth are in his hand, right? Like he holds all things together. He made it. He formed the dry land. And then it goes and says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. In, their, in, in, in his care, it actually means we're the sheep in his hand. There's this proclamation. There's this sense of triumph. There's this, this excitement about moving closer towards God's presence because of really two things in my mind. God is creator. God is over all things. He created everything on the earth, height and depth, far and wide, and of us, they're saying. God created us. He is our maker. And we are rightfully suited to move into his presence because he made us. He's our God, and we are his people. He is the creator. This is a theme that runs through so many of the Psalms, God as creator. But then they start talking about God as, cov- as covenant keeper as well. This is something, if you want to look at Psalm 19 at some point this week, you see the the author there says, God is creator, God is the covenant keeper. Creation and covenant are always parts of the language of the majority of the Psalms. We're going to praise God and we're excited to do so because he's the creator, but also because he's the covenant one. He is the one who's committed to the people of God to be their shepherd. We are the sheep that are in his hands and we will go and worship him as such. It begins by saying that he is the rock of our salvation, right? God is the saving one. He is the redeeming one, all of which is part of the covenant, the promise that he had made with Abraham so many hundreds of years before this was written. And as they move into the presence of God, as they get closer to his face, as they call it, in the Holy of Holies, they move through the temple courts and they get closer and the author says, come, let us kneel. Let us kneel before our maker. You want to talk about something that Americans have a problem with? I didn't mean that in the way that I just said it, but kneeling, submitting. Americans have a problem with that. We do not want to submit to anyone. We are, like, we have our rights and we are strong and we're going to stand up. This author says, no, 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 as the people of God, we are going to come in and we are going to kneel before God. He is our maker. He's the covenant keeper. He's the salvation, the rock of our salvation. We are the sheep of his hand. He is the good shepherd. It's all in his hands is what they are saying. All of creation, the covenant, us, it's all in his hands and he is worthy to be bowed before. They're excited to go in and do this in God's presence. So look at verse 7 with me. God of, cre- God of creation, God of covenant, verse 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, colon. 
like right in the middle of a verse, there's this, this switch that happens, and the, and the poet put it there for a reason. It's to grab our attention. It's to jar us awake, to say, whoa, whoa, something is happening here. So this priest comes out and says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. What the heck is he talking about? God of creation, God of covenant, be warned. Something happened years ago that you should remember, and the people of God would have remembered this. This would have been a story that they were told regularly, and it's a story that comes up often in the scriptures. Suddenly, this priest, before these excited people of God who are now kneeling at God's presence, says, today, today, right now, if you hear his voice, today, but he's remembering something that happened in the past. Remember this thing that happened in the past, but you today have decisions to make. You today have something to consider as you come before the presence of God, as you have seen his works in your lives. He's offering a warning to listen, which actually means to obey. He warns them to not put God to the test, like the generations before had at these places of Meribah and Massah. I want to read something for you. This is something that these people would have known well. This would have been a story that they knew. We've covered this before uh, when we went through the series in Numbers. But if you remember, the people of God at one point had found themselves in Egypt in slavery. God had made this covenant promise with Abraham. The God of creation, the God of covenant had made this promise with Abraham that he would bring the people of God into a promised land. Yet for 400 years, they find their lives in slavery. They're enslaved to the Egyptians, and they cry out to God, and God frees them through the people of Moses, and they're wandering through the desert, and God is providing food for them. They're complaining, and they're hungry, and God provides food for them. He, he's already provided water at another situation where he had, uh, uh, the people complain to God, and he gives them water, and then it happens again. So this is the, the, the thing that the, the poem is referencing. In verse, uh, chapter 17 of Exodus, the entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, which is like Sinai, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. They camped at uh, Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, I, I don't think we can pick up like just what's happening. Why are you complaining to me? Like, what am I supposed to do about it? Why are you testing the Lord, he says. Because they were doubting. God had just freed them from the Egyptians, done the ten plagues, parted the Red Sea, already provided water for them already, already provided manna, quail. Why are you complaining to me? You are testing the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, you jerk, and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're mad at him, right? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they're going to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because those words mean complained and tested because they complained and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
People of God are coming into the temple complex. They're excited to be before God. They're praising. They're going to kneel before the maker. They're going to kneel before the creator, the keeper of the covenant. And the priest comes out and he warns them and says, today, if you hear his voice, don't be like the people in the past who had seen all of God's mercies, who had seen the amazing things that God had done. And then they were like, yeah, but is God really with us? Is God really for us? Today's really hard. My life's really difficult. Is God really with us? And the priest is warning them now. Again, don't be like that. Remember to keep submitting to the Lord. Remember to believe that he is on the throne, that he is the creator, he's the keeper of covenant, that you are the sheep and he is the shepherd and you are in his hands and he will care for the people of God. He's warning them not to ask, is God really among us? What the priest is telling them What the people are constantly reminding themselves of is to trust God, to listen to God's voice, to obey his commands and find rest. Rest for their souls. This was really what was happening with the promised land that they were promised in the first place. Come into the temple, kneel before God. Today, make a decision again to worship the God of Israel, to bow before him to stay true to the God who calls himself I am, constantly in the present. But here's the problem, right? If we know Israel's history, we know that Israel worships all sorts of lesser gods on a regular basis. They start to give in to culture and worship gods of sexuality, gods of the harvest, gods of new moons and suns and all these things. They turn away from Yahweh regularly. They worship these created, these gods of created elements, right? The things that God had created for their good. They run to to lesser gods and they make covenants with other countries to protect them. They go to Egypt regularly. You'd think they would have learned. But throughout Israel's history, they go to Egypt multiple times and say, would you help us? We're having a famine. Same problem, different era. They make deals with foreign countries who will eventually come in and sack their country and exile them. They don't keep a covenant with the covenant God. They end up in exile again and again, wandering like sheep away from the good shepherd. The priest knows this. He knows the, the pension of the heart is to walk away from God and is warning them, today, while you hear his voice, while you're in his presence, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to bow before God and stay true to him? Now, here's the thing. Before we get too critical of Israel, let us remember ourselves. Right? This is part of what we learn when we read the Psalms, when we read the scriptures and see the stories, is that we're kind of the same way. That we find other things more important than the worship of God. That we give our lives to to all of these other things, believing that they will give us life, believing that they will give us rest, believing that we will find significance or security or approval that love that we all want so badly. And we give our lives to these lesser gods thinking, well, I'll find it in them. And we all, like sheep, go astray. Again and again and again. Regularly throughout the day, in little ways, in our lives in huge ways, and we end up in exile away from God. An exile that we've brought on ourselves We will face choices today to worship other things, to give allegiance to other things, 
and not kneel at the throne of our God. Friends, here's the good news today. Here's the gospel for us today, that Jesus is the good shepherd. Look with me at John 10. Jesus is preaching and giving these these metaphors. Can I just say this? One of the most beautiful things about the scriptures is that they are full of metaphors. We try so hard to learn information through our left brain, and sometimes we need a metaphor to just knock us upside the head. A piece of art, a piece of music, a poem to grab hold of us. That's why Jesus preaches and teaches the way that he does, because it's not all just information. We need beauty sometimes to awaken us. We need metaphors to to knock us out of our slumber, to make us think deeply in a new way. The Psalms are full of that. Jesus' teachings are like that. And so in this instance, he uses this metaphor. My sheep, he's already called himself the good shepherd earlier. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. He's offering the same metaphor. I'm the shepherd. Come to me. Hear my voice today. Hear my voice in the present. Hear my voice. Don't wander away. Jesus is the good shepherd. But if you know the story, you know that Jesus is also the perfect sheep. All of Israel's hopes come to rest on Jesus, the perfect Israel, who is the perfect sheep who leaves the Father's hand so that we can enter into it. Do you see it? Jesus is the shepherd of our souls, offering us the words of life. Eternal life is also, it's not just quantity, length of time, but it's also quality. Jesus is saying, I have the words of life. Come to me and receive them today. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He's the one that, earlier in John, he offers himself as living water. Water that will never run dry. Water that will give them life forever and life abundant as we follow him and drink from him. Jesus is, at one point he calls himself the daily bread. Which would have been a trigger to the Israelites to remember the manna, the daily bread that they had received in the desert all those years earlier, and he's saying, come to me, I am the bread of life today. Today, if you hear his voice, what is your response? Following God is a daily commitment. Faith is not just a one-time deal that we did years ago. It's a daily decision to kneel before our maker, before our creator, before our good shepherd and say, yes, I believe you. I want the words of life. I want that water that never runs out. I want that bread of life. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. The Psalms, these metaphors, these poems are meant to point to us, or point us to see that the Lord is God. But we also have Jesus to look at now as well. We can see Jesus all through the Psalms if we're reading and we're paying attention and we're looking for him. This is the beauty of the metaphors. So what's the application of this, right? The Lord is God. Great, Jim. Okay, there's a book full of poems. Awesome. Now what? 
What am I to do with this? I would argue that we are to read them. (laughs) We're to pray them. We are to soak in them and let let them saturate into our souls to properly orient our souls around the creator, around the keeper of the covenant, around the redeemer. And here's the good part, friends. This is what I love about the Psalms. They represent some really great, like, high points in the people of Israel and some really crappy low points, some really bad moments where people are just in utter despair, feeling like God is ignoring them, feeling like God is not answering their prayers, and they're crying out to God saying, where are you? You ever feel like that? Sometimes you don't even know what to pray. Find a psalm. You might have to read four or five before you get to one, and you're like, ah, this is the one, and then soak in it for a while. Let it start to speak to you. Orient your soul around it. Let it form you in a way to see that, guess what? The Lord is God, and I can come to him in all of my rage, in all of my depression, in all of my excitement, and find that he is good, that he is the shepherd of my soul, and that I'm the sheep that's in his hand. I would argue that gathering on Sundays is important, that forming ourselves around these hymns, around these poems, around these stories is is formational for us. The other six and a half days of the week, we are formed by everything else we encounter. We need to soak in the scriptures, the the word of life pointing to the living word of Jesus, but also as a people of God being formed on Sunday mornings by the liturgies, by the poems, letting them form us in our souls. The author to the Hebrews, recalling this very event from Exodus 17, says, let us not give up getting together. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, he says, let us encourage one another while it is today. Always pointing to the present tense, saying, let us, the people of God, remind each other regularly of who God is today. Who he was in the past, who he is today, the great I am, who will be tomorrow. Jesus the same yesterday, today, forever, constantly reminding each other of the truth and saying, what are we going to do with Jesus today? Daily repenting and believing in the words of the good shepherd, the gospel. Daily attempting to build our lives on the rock of Jesus and the gospel as he calls us to in Matthew 7. Finding rest like he promises, taking his yoke upon us, learning from him and walking with him through the reading of these psalms, through the singing, the praying of them, and through being together as a people of God, centering around these truths. Friends, the psalms declare it all through. The Bible declares it all through. The Lord, Yahweh, is God. What will you do with that today? Have you seen enough in the person and the God of Jesus to believe this? to see the fullness of his life that he offered for us to make a way for us to be with the Father, the love that he poured out for us, the self-sacrificing that he poured out for us, the perfect sinless life that he offers to the Father so that we, the guilty, can be made pure, so that we, the wandering sheep, can be brought into the hands of the Father. What will you do with Jesus today? Because what we see in this psalm and what we see all throughout is that the Lord is God. In our high points and our low points, in our goods and our bads, in our wandering and in our staying, the Lord is God. He is, I am, eternally present. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the Father? What will you do with the Spirit today? This is the question that the Psalms cause us to ask when we read them. 
We're going to celebrate communion now. If you've been part of the people of God, you know, a, a believer in Jesus for a while, you know that communion is a, is a memorial of sorts. It's, it's a remembering of what the good shepherd, the perfect pure sheep, offered on our behalf. His body offered as living bread on the cross for us. His blood poured out for us for the atonement of sins, the scriptures say, so that we can be in God's presence despite being wandering dirty sheep. Jesus says, I've offered this for you so that you can have a way into the presence of the Father. The Lord is God, and Jesus says, I'm offering him to you through my body, through my blood. So what will you do today with the daily bread of Jesus, the blood of the atonement? And we don't believe anything magical happens. We don't preach that this is the actual body and blood of Jesus. Some traditions do that. Preach that this is a, a memorial, a remembrance. It is bread and grape juice. It actually is grape juice this time, not cranberry juice like last time. That was a mistake. Uh, it is It is. Grape juice. I want to read something. I want you to hear the metaphor. It's a fascinating thing. Jesus is teaching the people, reminding them about the bread of life that the ancestors had eaten, the manna that God had provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness. Listen to this metaphor, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They missed the metaphor. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Would you pray with me?